cable television promised to use coaxial cables to deliver a clearer TV picture to the large swaths of the country that struggled due to mountain ranges or similar impediments to pick up broadcast TV signals. For a small additional monthly fee, they'd get to watch a mix of programming, which, Dolan imagined, would include local sports from Madison Square Garden and a slate of Hollywood movies uninterrupted by ads. He planned to charge $6 per month. They called it the Home Box Office, or HBO for short. They hoped the name would convey the essence of its mission, allowing consumers to watch novel performances at home, movies, concerts, sports competitions that had previously required buying a ticket and trekking out to a public venue. That is from Felix Gillette and John Coblin's influential book, It's Not TV, which chronicles the rise of HBO as this premium cable channel and its eventual competition with Netflix in the streaming wars. The book shares countless stories on HBO's high-quality content playbook, including its innovative cable edge approach and its desire to be different, their counter-positioning. From groundbreaking shows like The Sopranos and Game of Thrones to its involvement in the changing media landscape, HBO is one of the major entertainment players still to this day. So get excited for an incredible chronicle of one of my favorite media companies, HBO. The goal of this episode is definitely going to be telling the history of HBO, but I really want to understand personally how they've been able to sustain such a high success rate or hit rate with their shows. I think in the original TV programming department, most people would agree that more often than not, the HBO shows end up being higher quality than those of streaming giant Netflix or some of their competitors. So I think throughout this history, I want to understand which points, which decisions have led to HBO creating content a certain way and eventually this higher hit rate that we're used to within HBO. We'll start off with the early innings of HBO, or as we know, home box office. So as the opening quote described, HBO was solving a problem in a time that broadcast TV was the main player in the TV market. So broadcast TV was free for consumers. It was sponsored by advertising and it really had to appeal to the mass consumer. And cable, HBO was really the first cable channel that came into the scene taking a different approach. So HBO, their approach was not sponsored by ads, broadcast TV. Cable instead was solving the consumer problem of reception, literal physical reception, like if you live in mountain rages or you're obstructed by something. But at the same time, cable TV, they realized that this is a subscription offering. So it could offer this real premium content rather than the ad-sponsored content, which had to just appeal to everyone because it was this free tier, this casual tier. So one of the early revelations at HBO was renting space on satellites that go out into orbit. With satellite distribution, 
HBO could beam shows simultaneously to cable system providers around North America. So this satellite connection, as we know today, satellite dishes are installed on our homes to allow for some of this better quality TV. HBO was really the pioneer in this regard. It was in 1974 when they were trying to air the third Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier fight, this famous fight known as Thriller in Manila. And everyone was impressed with how good the quality of the TV was with this satellite reception. People were very skeptical beforehand and now seeing the fight, and this was a massive fight, Thriller in Manila, so massive fight, Muhammad Ali, one of his biggest fights. So HBO had proven to the world that satellite was the way to bet on for cable TV. And reflecting back, we now see HBO was really the pioneer of cable TV as a whole, these add-on cable TV channels. We didn't just build HBO, one of the network's top executives would later say. We built the cable industry. They started this wave of satellite dishes and new cable channels like ESPN, Nickelodeon, with HBO, they were the early pioneers, so they were leading the pack. They had massive customer growth, but at the same time, all these other cable add-ons came onto the scene over time. So they would use this shared revenue model with the cable operators, like a Comcast, for example, where there's an $8 to $12 fee, and HBO would get half of that, and the cable operator would get half of that. As HBO was establishing itself as this first cable operator, this subscription add-on rather than ad-sponsored model, they realized that they have to operate differently than the big broadcast networks. So they continued by saying, One study found that in 1976, of the 85 million Americans who owned a TV, 9 out of 10 viewers watched evening programming on the big three networks. Their control over popular culture felt unassailable. So the big three networks, that was ABC, NBC, and CBS. And we know that all these Americans, 9 out of 10 of them are watching the broadcast networks because... They're sponsored by ads. This is the free model where you're sponsored by ads and you want to appeal to the mass viewership. So millions of people would tune in to the broadcast TV shows and it would really be ingrained in our pop culture. These are shows like Seinfeld, where Seinfeld, the season finale, had 76 million people watching. 76 million people. That's almost Super Bowl numbers modern day. So that is really unfathomable to think of. And when we reflect back on these old days, the broadcast TV days, we should remember that they had to appeal to the masses. This is pop culture being defined and the broadcast TV networks, they're appealing to the masters with their ad-sponsored model. These are the companies like Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble are the big advertisers behind these broadcast networks. So at the same time, HBO is becoming an established player in this cable subscription offering, they realize they have to take a very different approach. HBO would have to be judicious with its limited resources and exploit programming opportunities that the network were ignoring, Fuchs figured. Everything HBO did would have to be different. Otherwise, 
Why would anybody keep paying? So we saw this trend in one of the other books we read. Trader Joe's founder, Joe Coulomb, mentioned a very similar thing. Trader Joe's in the early days was trying to escape from the homogenized mass content, like in his field, it was the Ralph's and all the standard supermarkets that would carry the same mass products. He wanted to escape that trend and offer really niche products because that would allow him not to need to compete or differentiate solely on price. The big broadcast networks had much more money than a company like HBO. And similarly, the big grocers like Ralph's had much more money than a new upstart like Trader Joe's. So if you're offering something different, unique and niche, like Trader Joe's was, like HBO was trying to establish at this time, then you are not distinguishing yourself on price anymore. You don't have to get into these bidding wars for the most appealing mass consumer content. Now you could create your own unique content that customers will come specifically to your grocery store for, or customers will subscribe specifically to your premium cable channel for, so they could get that unique content. So in the very early days, a lot of HBO's focus, this home box office, was on bringing movies to your home. They would license movies and bring it to your home. So as you can expect, bringing movies to our homes, this caused a little bit of animosity with their suppliers, the big movie studios. At the time, some of the big executives of the movie studios were really fearful that HBO would ruin their industry. Barry Diller would say, if HBO and Time Inc. go on unchecked, the motion picture business, without exception, will be under total control of one company in less than five years. So we see HBO has this slightly contentious relationship with their suppliers because although they need to get these movies to broadcast into your homes to offer it in their subscription package, the big studios are worried that HBO is going to have too much control over the film business. And HBO, they recognize this, so they realize they should also diversify outside of movies, and that's when they decided to start getting into sports as well. One of the first of which was boxing, because boxing was this highly violent sport that, as we spoke about earlier, the broadcast networks, this is something they couldn't pursue. The sponsored ad dollars wouldn't accept that type of programming right next to, let's say, a Coca-Cola ad or a toothbrace commercial from Colgate. So broadcast TV was not able to do it, which meant HBO wanted to pursue it even harder. One of HBO's sports executives, who had actually learned under Rune Arledge from ABC Sports, we know one of Bob Iger's biggest mentors, would go on to say about this time, about the boxing deal that HBO was able to sign. He said, with no nervous sponsors looking over their shoulders, HBO executives once again saw an opportunity to do the opposite of the broadcast networks. HBO rushed in. The funny thing about the networks is that they chose the wrong time to get out because the 80s were probably the greatest decade in boxing history. I think from this, we can learn two really important lessons. The first of which is 
investing in the downturn or investing when no one else is looking. That's a lesson we learned from the chip war episode. We saw invest in a downturn or invest when no one else is paying attention. This is like Samsung when they built up their lead in the memory business, in the DRAM chip business. They invested heavily during the downturn after the Japanese competitors had started to falter and had many financial problems, and they ended up becoming this leader in memory capacity. The other lesson we could take away from this is investing in the areas with low expectations. We see in the modern day, the media company that will do this often, especially with sports, is actually Netflix. Netflix has this general rule that they don't like to pay for sports rights. They say that you're basically renting content, not owning it, because you only have those rights for a set number of years. But what they will do is they will take less popular sports than, let's say, the NFL or the NBA. They will take sports like F1 and they will create a TV show around the sport. They won't actually broadcast the rights to the actual events, but they will create a TV show and that will increase the popularity of the sport tremendously. So they're investing in this low expectation content like F1. It's not as highly rated in a TV network perspective like the NFL or maybe NBA, but they're able to turn that around and create a much bigger franchise with a low opportunity cost. So with HBO at the time, this was boxing. They bet heavily actually on Mike Tyson because he was the big boxer back then. Now, as HBO went into the 80s, they started to see more competition really pop up in this cable satellite TV market. So new channels, these premium channels, as I mentioned before, Nickelodeon, ESPN, different channels that could be added to your cable bundle, new channels started becoming available that were alternate options to HBO. They were trying to emulate that premium home box office and quality TV content. The biggest of which was Showtime. So Showtime was competing for movie licensing. And the problem is when you have a big competitor, they end up driving up the price. So now Showtime is also competing for the same movies. And unfortunately, HBO isn't getting these killer deals that they were used to. While HBO was dealing with these new emulators coming onto the scene like Showtime, they also had to battle the growing threat of VCRs. The authors would say, the growing threat from VCRs only exacerbated a chronic condition afflicting HBO, known in the cable business as churn. Each month, a portion of HBO's customer base canceled their subscriptions. If, say, 5% of HBO's base quit, the network would need to find hundreds of thousands of new households just to stay even. A small upswing in the churn rate could translate into a heavy hit to the network's livelihood. So churn is a big problem that we see for any type of really subscription business. HBO, their goal was to focus on this niche content and be really edgy content or different content from the broadcast networks so they could appeal to viewers. And we're seeing now they may have to start getting away from their primary business playbook, their movie business, movie licensing playbook, because they're facing 
both competition from other cable companies like Showtime and competition from VCRs where you could just rent the individual movie. So these days in the mid 80s is when HBO is starting to realize maybe it's time for us to think about original programming. How can we integrate original programming into the picture? One downside of the HBO business model was that the cable operators, not HBO, controlled the relationships with customers and also the information on who they were, where they lived, how often they canceled, and what else they subscribed to. HBO had minimal access to customer data. This is such a big issue, as you could imagine. HBO is starting to face these questions around churn rate, people are unsubscribing to the service, and at the same time, they are not in control of their own distribution. That is one of the lessons we learned from John D. Rockefeller, where his railroad counterparties had to lease the oil tank cars from him to operate their own business. And that obviously would greatly impact their business. So this is a similar issue that HBO was facing. They have to go through a cable operator like Comcast to access the end customer, which could create a problem down the line when you want to access the customer directly. And we will see later in this episode, this ends up actually creating a problem when they want to start a streaming service, a competitive streaming service to Netflix and the likes. So by 1989 was when HBO's parent company, Time, merged with Warner Communications. And it created this big conglomerate in the media business. They said, a vast publicly traded colossus, which among other assets owned the Warner Bros. movie studio, the Atlantic record label, and DC Comics, home to Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. After the merger, HBO now started to have the resources where they could pursue some original programming and getting really into the TV programming to compete with the broadcast networks. So to continue with Cable Edge, this was really how they would try to set themselves apart. They would say, often early drafts of scripts came back with a note from HBO executives. It doesn't really have that Cable Edge to it. Cable Edge was code for it didn't have nudity in the script. Eventually, HBO executives realized that viewers were growing attached to the characters, and the pressure for Cable Edge tapered off. I feel like we have the opportunity to tell some really great stories. And we see Cable Edge, this was a common trend in many of the big series like Game of Thrones. You could think Game of Thrones has a very violent cast, it has a lot more nudity, especially in the first few seasons. And then as the characters develop and as you start to watch the show, not for that cable edge necessarily, but you're watching it for the actual character development and the storylines, then you realize that HBO has been able to weave together these great stories really well. We know the other side of their content decision-making was really meant to counter-position the broadcast TV networks. The primary part of our decision is to ask, could anyone else do it? If the answer is yes, then it's not for HBO. So it was in the mid-90s. DirecTV was another one of these cable operators that were adding millions of new subscribers to HBO. And there was a new CEO in charge, 
Jeff Bukes. When HBO really put their money where their mouth is, they doubled down on this cable edge and counter positioning strategy to the broadcast networks, and they went heavily on original TV programming. Their old boss in the previous regime, Michael Fuchs, he had to approve any original content. It was really just whatever he thinks will be successful. And we learned from the episode at Disney with Michael Eisner, these are two Michaels sharing the same traits, but Michael Eisner would do the same thing. He would need this executive approval for any like strap planning decision. And that would end up being very demoralizing for content creators. So we saw at HBO, a similar thing was happening in the very early days. Michael Fuchs, the CEO, had to approve any original content. Now with the new CEO in charge, Jeff Bukes, you could actually push ahead with original content as long as it's edgy and it's different from the broadcast networks and the bigger providers. So they would go on to back heavily this new show called Oz that was all about prison and the intense relationships within the prison system. So the director said of this, the naysayers who told me I was killing my career by doing Oz, once they saw the show, they were like, oh fuck, we get it. I went from looking like an idiot to looking like a genius for doing a show on HBO. And this is really because HBO is able to create this really edgy show, the show that is so different from broadcast TV, back to not having sponsored ads. So sponsored ads, I want to keep bringing this up because when you have sponsored ads in the TV network, they are making their programming decisions with those advertisers in mind. You don't want to piss off the advertisers or you don't want to create anything too edgy, too violent, too sexual, whatever it may be. HBO, they would go the completely other direction. So they continued this original TV programming strategy and they started having some really massive hits in the 90s, the late 90s, with Sex in the City and The Sopranos Next. They said, during the intervening weeks, the Fox executives had soured on the idea after it finally dawned on them that the Fox Standards and Practices team and that the network sales executives who sold commercial time to advertisers would balk at the gritty material. So this was in reference to Sopranos. Sopranos ends up becoming one of HBO's biggest TV shows. It really put them on the map as this original TV creator and the network Fox, one of the big TV networks, missed out because they questioned the edginess of the mobster aspect or therapy in shows and that emotional angle. So Fox had to miss out because, as we see, they were thinking too much about their advertisers. How would their advertisers react to a show like The Sopranos? HBO, on the other hand, when they hear one of these networks may react this way, that only makes them more interested. It only makes them say, wow, we need to pursue this right now. This is our type of show. As they were hitting it off in their original TV landscape, they started to realize a different lesson around how they should prioritize their programming. So we know in the past, they would spend a lot of time trying to license movies from the big movie operators, and then they started to get more into sports like boxing 
and one-off special events. Like they were big with documentaries and comedies. They would bring in Chris Rock, other big comedians, to do these one-off, hour-long comedic specials. And in this time, it was the end of Seinfeld, and Jerry Seinfeld, after the finale, he wanted to do a stand-up special on HBO. So they end up producing this stand-up special with Seinfeld, and it did get good reviews. People generally liked it, but it was this very high cost. And the HBO team started to question, does it make more sense to do these expensive one-off events or to create these original TV series that will keep people in the HBO cycle much longer? So some of the executives would ask at the time, they would say, Compared with a popular recurring series like Sex and the City, any one-time product, be it a stand-up act, a music concert, a boxing match, or an original movie, looked like a rather inefficient way to attract and retain subscribers, no matter how buzzy. All of which added to the growing belief inside the network that original series, not original specials, were the key to the network's future. This follows with their slogan, it's not TV, it's HBO. So that is defining how HBO is meant to be different from broadcast TV. They want to be edgier, they want to be different, and they made their actual slogan, it's not TV. So they would go on to say, at more than $2 million per episode, The Sopranos was HBO's most expensive show yet. But splurging on original series as opposed to original movies was well worth it because the serialized format helped HBO pull in and retain subscribers much better than one-off events. That is also where their strategy started to cater around HBO owning Sunday night. So if you're a big HBO fan like I am watching many of their shows like Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, Last of Us Now, you will notice that That Sunday night, 6 p.m. slot, or 9 p.m. if you're on Eastern time, that Sunday night is owned by HBO. They would really cater their programming slate and their top shows each quarter to that Sunday night slot. And they realize that if they have a show go on for 10 weeks or so, you really need five big shows every year to retain the customer all year round. And we see from the economics Sopranos was their most expensive show. I mean, this was pre-Game of Thrones, so I'm sure that surpassed Sopranos. But if we take a $2 million per episode and we say it's a 10-episode series or 12-episode series, you're looking at a $20 to $25 million budget per season. On the other hand, when you look at an original movie, like a two-hour movie, that you want really big graphics, big effects... Movies like that these days can cost between 100 to 200 million. So HBO was getting this realization that not only does it look expensive to do this big Sopranos show, that cost is deceiving because it will keep people in the HBO subscriber numbers much longer, but also it is relatively inexpensive when you compare it to these big original movies like a Marvel movie or like any type of big-budget movie, Netflix's big-budget movies that go straight to streaming these days. This was also the time post-Seinfeld that Larry David started to work with HBO on his hit show, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Not long after Seinfeld's conclusion, 
David decided to get back into stand-up comedy. He'd make a mockumentary in which he would play a lightly fictionalized version of himself and a bunch of actors would play the people in his life, including his wife, his friends, and his neighbors. His performances in clubs would be real footage. Everything else would be loosely scripted and improvised on the spot. So that is Curb being born. I'm sharing this for the fellow Curb fans. This is my favorite comedy show. I highly recommend anyone listening to watch some episodes, especially season 10 is particularly hilarious. And Larry David is the GOAT comedian. So check it out. As the late 1990s started to roll around, the broadcast TV networks and executives started to really get jealous of the cable operators like HBO because they can make this edgier content with their subscription business model without needing to worry about the sponsors and the advertising and even more so the ratings. The authors would say, unlike their counterparts in broadcast television, HBO executives didn't have to live every waking moment with one eye scanning the Nielsen ratings. The network executives were all jealous about that because they were basically looking every night, how's the show doing? Do I have a job tomorrow? This difference runs so deep. We see again and again throughout this book how HBO's original decision to choose a subscription business model rather than advertising base has allowed them to really distinguish so much in their actual programming decisions. Edgier content, different types of content involving violence, involving sex, involving all these different storylines, it is very different than what the broadcast networks could do because they had to focus so much on the ratings and on the sponsored ad dollars coming in. This is such great counter positioning to study. And as we know, that differentiation is what really created the value of HBO. One of their execs would say, in business and creativity, there is no safety in the pack. The value creation is in doing things differently. We know from the last episode, Pixar's Ed Catmull would say a very similar thing. He would use the brain trust as this feedback mechanism, and they would iterate constantly to find these deep storylines around human emotion that doesn't feel repetitive. It doesn't feel inorganic. He wants to create storylines that truly feel innovative, inventive, that feel different, and he would embrace failure to get there. HBO, on the same hand, would embrace failure. They would find ways of doing things differently from the old networks, the broadcast TV networks, so they could stand out. And that's really how they created a lot of their value. So we can now skip ahead a bit to the mid-2000s when we start to see some of the early signs of Innovator's Dilemma within HBO. So HBO back then, Netflix had established itself as a big DVD by mail company, and it was starting to invest a bit more into the streaming business. And HBO, as another big media company at the time, much bigger than Netflix, saw this and they realized they should start their own streaming provider as well. Now, the problem, as we spoke about earlier, controlling your distribution, was that if they started a streaming business that goes direct to customers, it would piss off 
their cable operators, the cable partners, and it would really hurt their incumbent business. It would require them to find customers directly, which would hurt their incumbent business because then the cable operators may say, I'm not going to bundle HBO with all my other shows anymore. This was a big method of cable's growth. It would be bundled with many other shows. So if a company like Comcast sees that you're going around them to try to sell direct to the customer and keep that full $10 share rather than splitting it with them, then they're going to get pissed off and they're going to fight back with you. A lot of the manager incentives were also drafted around these Comcast interrelationships. They said the annual year-end bonuses for many top executives at the network were tied in part to the number of HBO subscribers at big cable companies like Comcast. If those numbers went up, so did their compensation. As we see with every innovator's dilemma example, the manager's incentives are rational. The incentives are to increase subscriber numbers with cable partners like Comcast. And we see you cannot really start a streaming business if your main distributor is going to get really pissed off and cut off half of your growth overnight, right? Around this time was also when HBO finally found their next hit show, which is personally my favorite show of all time. I think the GOAT of all shows, Game of Thrones. Enter the Dragons. In late 2008, Plepler and Lombardo were weighing whether to order up a pilot of Game of Thrones, a fantasy series based on the dragon-laden novels by George R.R. R. Martin. There were several obstacles. The show would be a big investment for the network. Fantasy shows are the most expensive of any genre, and movies like Lord of the Rings set a high bar. Audiences expected lavish special effects. HBO would shell out some $10 million, more than double what most networks paid for the drama series. So with Game of Thrones, the interesting early stories of the development was that they made a pilot and it ended up looking terrible, it ended up being this terribly produced pilot. But they decided to continue. They bet on the talent, the two writers behind Game of Thrones, and they brought in a new director to reshoot the pilot and the whole first season. So they brought in this director named Tim Van Patten, who was known within HBO as the superstar director. He had directed across Sopranos and a few other of the most popular HBO shows. So they said his, his impact on Game of Thrones was immense. HBO's ace show mechanic would repeatedly ask people nearby a simple reductive question. Is this a good guy or a bad guy? Just boil it down. I think the true differentiating quality of a show like Game of Thrones, and you see it in some of the other HBO shows as well, is that they're willing to kill off the main characters so early in the show's arc. And that will shock viewers. It obviously makes you sad when you see some of the main characters. I don't want to spoil anything, but when you see main characters dying off. But at the same time, it makes you much more invested in the story and the character development. It is another aspect of this edginess bearing fruit. So as the 2000s decade nears the end, that's when HBO starts to see 
Netflix is becoming a real threat. And it is with the downfall of Blockbuster that we start to see some shifting dynamics in the media industry. The authors would say, in the fall of 2010, teetering under $1 billion of debt, Blockbuster declared bankruptcy. The company's once ubiquitous blue and yellow branded stores were starting to recede from the American landscape on roughly the same trajectory as bison and telephone booths. It was another reminder of what happened to the industry frontrunners that became so wedded to one era of technology, video cassettes, that they failed to adapt speedily to whatever came next, DVDs and the internet. Basically, extinction. Much of Netflix's strategy over that decade evolved with the addition of Ted Sarandos, who is now the co-CEO of Netflix, and back then in the early 2000s, he joined Netflix to really be this tastemaker of the content. He would manage their DVD industry, and he would choose which movies that they should have more of in stock based on consumer preferences and based on their internal data. Now, over time, as streaming developed, he moved into more of a role of licensing rights from other companies. So they would say Disney had just sold the entire back catalog of Lost to Netflix. FX was typically game to take the streamer's money. And AMC series like Mad Men and Breaking Bad would soon be on the service too. What was really interesting of this time was that HBO refused to license their premium shows to Netflix. They were really afraid of diluting their brand, these premium shows like Sopranos and Game of Thrones. And that lesson really was what sparked Netflix to start pursuing original programming themselves. They realized if HBO, if one of the content providers is not willing to license our shows, we may have to start producing our own shows because eventually all the other content networks will follow suit. So this realization was culminated with the creation of House of Cards. House of Cards was really the second original programming, the original TV show that came out of Netflix, but it was the first massive hit to come out of Netflix. And House of Cards was actually meant to go to HBO originally until in the last minute, Netflix swept in, they secured the rights, and this was this big original deal by offering a two-season guarantee and a $100 million contract. That is unheard of in the TV industry, and it was something that HBO simply could not match. They typically will give you a pilot, maybe a full season guarantee if it's a director they've worked with before, for example, but giving a two-season guarantee and $100 million led Netflix to take up House of Cards, and it really gave them this big opener in the original TV landscape. Netflix had recognize that they are eventually going to have this competitive threat where the other companies like Disney or FX, AMC are not going to simply license their content at these lower rates. And this was when Ted Sarandos dropped the famous line, the goal is to become HBO faster than HBO can become us. So they had invested heavily with House of Cards being this big original programming decision and they quickly followed that up 
with Orange is the New Black, another big hit in their original programming department, and it really proved their chops in this regard. Over the coming years, as Netflix continued to dominate this streaming battle, the CEO of Time Warner, Jeff Bukes, was continually marginalizing Netflix. It, it didn't really make much sense. He had this quote that he was saying, is the Albanian army going to take over the world? In reference to Netflix in the early days, he was basically saying, it seems like they're making progress, but should anyone really be scared of this Albanian army, this small player in the media empire? And over time, I'm sure he ended up regretting that saying because Netflix used it as this internal motivator within their team. They put up signs saying Albanian army. Even as Netflix grew in size to a massive streaming player and a big player in the media universe, he would still use these quotes saying AOL's massive market cap, $170 billion market cap, went up in smoke in the tech crunch. So it seems like Jeff Bukes, instead of focusing on his own problems within the company, which at the time with HBO was that their streaming technology was not nearly as functional as Netflix's, he would instead point at his competitor and try to bring down his competitor. I think this is really trying to divert the attention in the media industry. So they were talking about some of the struggles of HBO at the time were immense, and these were things that Netflix considered a competitive advantage. The authors would say, HBO Go lacked key features like recommendations, deep personalization, social integration, and watch next episode buttons. I would say, in many ways, the UI of HBO Max, they've renamed now, so the UI of HBO Max still doesn't have a lot of these functionalities that we've grown accustomed to on Netflix and some of the newer providers like Apple TV are trying to create as well. I would say HBO Max has one of the worst app experiences or UI experiences where you have to search for any show and it's it's really just the most recent shows or the most popular shows are the only ones shown to you. It's not personal preferences. It's not recommendation-based. So this is clearly the CEO was dealing with streaming problems that in some ways they still haven't addressed. And these were clear advantages that Netflix had back then and has continued to have until today. Now, it wasn't until late 2014 when HBO finally decided to launch HBO Now, which you may be a little confused. This was definitely confusing for me back then because HBO Now was meant to be their over-the-top streaming service, which is basically if you don't have cable, you could sign up directly for HBO Now, whereas HBO Go was their streaming service if you have cable already. So they basically had to create two separate apps because there were so many issues of that innovator's dilemma, the original cable companies not being very happy about them going straight to streaming customers. And part of that, to solve some of their technical issues with literally the streaming technology, they decided to partner with another company rather than build the solution in-house, and they ended up partnering with BAMTech. We spoke about this a little bit on the Disney episode because 
Disney now owns a significant portion of the company, and I believe they actually have the rights to buy out the rest of the company. But back then, BAM Tech was this streaming media provider for the MLB. That was really its origins. And this helped HBO. It partnered with BAM Tech by providing a short-term solution to streaming infrastructure. They wanted to create the streaming infrastructure right before the new season of Game of Thrones. I think the issue with this partnership, though, now looking back, is that for the long term, it's probably a worse decision for the company rather than an in-house solution because they don't own this underlying tech infrastructure, the streaming technology infrastructure that Netflix is very well known for. And like we just said, with the UI, that continues to be representative of issues they're facing in the modern day in 2023, almost 10 years later. They still struggle with personalized recommendations in the HBO Max app. So I think this BAMTech partnership, it was the short-term band-aid, but it seems like it was not the long-term solution that HBO needed. They just wanted a quick fix to be able to compete in the streaming wars. And HBO, they are clearly the king of content. They provide great content, but when it comes to data decision-making or streaming technology and infrastructure, Netflix clearly seems to have the lead against other streamers in that regard. It was by the mid-2010s when we started to see Netflix really take the lead against almost all the media players in that industry. So that was really when HBO decided to seed the international market. And what was going on at the time was HBO, many of their shows are popular internationally, like Game of Thrones is a massive international hit. The issue was that they made this conscious decision in 2014, 2015, 2016, not to compete with their actual brand in their own streaming service, their own branded channel in these international markets. They decided instead to license their content and get this high margin revenues straight into their company. The authors would say, sometimes the most efficient way to wring profits out of a particular region was to set up, build, and operate an HBO branded channel. But often the opposite was true. It was significantly more lucrative to license HBO's most desirable programming exclusively to the highest local bidder. So we're seeing HBO is deciding to give up their most valuable content like Game of Thrones to these high bidders in foreign markets like Sky Sports and different types of foreign bidders. And in a way that brings in this high margin revenue because you're just collecting dollars for content you've already produced. But on the other hand, your brand, you're not really able to grow a subscriber base internationally because now no one internationally knows that this content comes from your HBO brand, this high quality content brand. So in some ways, this capped a little bit of HBO's growth compared to Netflix because Netflix takes the model of marketing their streaming services abroad with their Netflix brand and HBO would license it with other television networks brands on top of the content. The authors would continue to say, by January 2016, Netflix operated in more than 190 countries, while HBO's hard-earned brand halo 
decades in the offing, was essentially stuck at home. HBO would seed the international title without putting up so much as a fight. And not only now are they capped from international growth, in the mid-2000s, by 2016, that period, they just couldn't compete on content spending with Netflix. Most of these media incumbent players could not compete anymore. Netflix starts outspending all their rivals, spending first seven, eight, then 10, then 15, now like $17 billion a year in content where they're able to steal these stars who were long since in the incumbent businesses like Chris Rock at HBO. They're able to steal these stars from the incumbents and just pay them more because they have a much greater budget for content production and content capex. They were able to make these big new hits at Netflix like The Crown, this massive hit, or like Squid Games, this international hit. So Netflix started to take this very clear lead in the streaming battle and really in the media landscape. They stopped being the Albanian army, as Jeffrey Bukes would say, and they become this real leader in the media landscape because they're simply able to outspend their rivals and they started to dominate both the domestic market and the international market. It was around this time in 2016 when Time Warner's Jeffrey Bukes started discussing a potential acquisition with AT&T and they were discussing what was an $85 billion acquisition, a massive acquisition for a media company. And to complete this acquisition, AT&T would have to put a lot of debt onto the new company. They would have to use a lot of debt to acquire this $85 billion media incumbent business. And at the time, there was one key person, a favorite of this podcast, who just missed out. A short while later, in early October, Bukes got a surprise message from Bob Iger, the head of Disney. He too was interested in discussing a possible deal to acquire Time Warner. Like everyone else in the home entertainment business, Disney was girding itself for the transition from the cable and satellite era to the streaming age and was looking for ways to bulk up its portfolio of entertainment brands. But he was too late. So as we know from the Disney episode, Iger, a few years later, he ends up buying the Fox assets to complete this general portfolio of content. It's away from the Disney core IP type of strategy. And we see HBO does end up getting sold. It, it took a few years of an M&A process, but HBO does end up getting sold to AT&T, the telecom giant, in a very, I would say, looking back, a very head-scratching deal. Only six years later, AT&T decided to reverse course and spin out Time Warner again and probably led to this massive goodwill write-down of the original acquisition value, this massive loss for shareholders. So I think this acquisition brings up a really interesting point that I did notice throughout the book. I find it very impressive that despite many of these ill-suited owners for the HBO brand, we see HBO, as we know, is this high-quality content engine, and it's had many odd-fitting owners like AOL, AT&T now, even Time Inc., I think was 
a little bit of an odd merger in the very beginning or an odd original owner of the channel. But HBO, despite all this, has continued to be this real premium content creator. Like, they still put out hit shows again and again. Unfortunately, though, this last AT&T acquisition did end up having this big impact on the culture at HBO. One of the executives who came on board as part of this acquisition was John Stankey. Stankey is now the CEO of AT&T, so he is this prominent person within the telecom company, and part of his role was trying to lead this merger process. He, however, tried changing too many things within the company and within the culture, and executives of the old HBO brand, the ones who had been at the company for a very long time, decided it was time for them to leave like Richard Plepler. He was the CEO of HBO over the last few years, and he decided to leave in 2019 because HBO was changing too much under Stankey's new rule. In addition to that, Elliott Management, this highly activist investor and hedge fund, came in and they were pushing to change, and that led to even more executive turnover at HBO. So I think 2019, we started to see some real testing of the limits at HBO because of so much of a culture clash. Another big issue for the company with this culture clash was that now they were part of AT&T and part of that was bringing together a bigger company with more resources to fight off the likes of Netflix and other streaming giants like Disney now building a streaming competitor. But AT&T was what is known as a dividend aristocrat. So they said, every year since 1985, AT&T had annually increased the size of its dividend payout to investors, making it a so-called dividend aristocrat and a favorite with investors and wealth managers. This is a really important point. Dividend aristocrat are these companies that consistently pay out dividends and oftentimes will increase them every year or so. And people begin to rely on that dividend to the point that a company can end up being practically held hostage by their dividend. In many ways, if AT&T really wanted to compete in the media landscape, they were probably better placed spending money on content. Netflix, like I mentioned, was spending about $17 billion a year on content. Even if you don't want to say they should be competing in the media landscape, they maybe would be better placed spending that money reducing their debt load or spending that money on CapEx to further support the 5G infrastructure and the 5G rollout. So I think this is something you really have to be careful of as investors, where you see these companies that are dividend aristocrats, many people rely on their dividend as a stable source of income. It could lead to that company being competitively in an unfavorable position when they cannot retain those earnings and spend it on more fruitful endeavors or more important endeavors to stay competitive in their industry and must rather continue just paying out their dividend no matter the consequences. As we now approach the modern day in this media landscape and what many knew over the past few years as the streaming wars, we saw Netflix really turn into this provider of all types of content. What 
some executives called Netflix becoming CBS, just this constant provider of all types of content. So the authors would say, with hundreds of original TV series, including reality shows, animated programs, children's entertainment, movies, and local language productions, Netflix was emerging as something far bigger and broader than a premium cable channel. Few disagreed when AT&T's Randall Stevenson said he thought of Netflix as the Walmart of streaming services. That reflects how Netflix over the last few years feels like they've surpassed even the cable competition of the HBOs and Hulus of the world, and now they're competing on just the mass general consumer entertainment. Oftentimes, Netflix will say their biggest competitor today is Fortnite or it's YouTube, anyone who's competing for people's attention. We've seen these last few years that many of these companies have tried competing in what many called the streaming wars, and in many ways that was a fight for subscriber numbers. Everyone was looking to acquire as many subscribers as possible until Netflix, with their earnings report in early 2022, they showed that they lost subscribers and the whole industry freaked out. With inflation rising and interest rate changing, everyone started realizing maybe we should be focusing a little bit more on profitability and cash flow rather than pure subscriber numbers. Is this streaming war going to be profitable and where is the consolidation going to lie? So in this regard, HBO as well was competing in the streaming wars. They were pushing for subscriber numbers. They remarketed themselves as HBO Max and they combined the confusing HBO Go and HBO Now, two separate services. And their CEO, Jason Kilar, he decided to release all of their movies in 2021 direct to streaming, which in many ways pissed off people in the film business. Christopher Nolan, one of the biggest directors in the film business, said most important movie stars went to bed the night before thinking they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find out they were working for the worst streaming service. So that is an example of Kilar, the new CEO in HBO Max, he was focusing much more on subscriber numbers. He was seeing maybe if we release our movies straight to theaters and streaming, we could bump up our subscriber numbers. Now there's been a big shift. Now we've seen executives start to shift to, we want healthy subscribers. We want subscribers who will not churn. Bob Iger on his latest earnings call when he's now returned as the Disney CEO, he said as much. He said, I think we got a little optimistic and over-enthusiastic about gaining subscribers at all costs, and maybe we should focus on the best subscribers. So the same thing is playing out in HBO with now David Zaslav coming onto the scene. So in late 2021, Zaslav, who's known as this media legend, he's the CEO of Discovery, he pitched Stankey on combining Discovery with HBO. And with this merger, it would change the combined company a lot. They would say it would require AT&T to spin off Warner Media, which would then merge with Discovery. It would alleviate some of AT&T's debt and allow the company to get back to its core business. So now AT&T is able to focus again on telecom. They don't have to think about 
the media landscape, the streaming wars anymore. And it really marks an end to this unsuccessful acquisition by AT&T. One of the prominent industry analysts in the media landscape said the exact same thing. He said, what a dismal failure and what an embarrassing chapter for what was once one of America's most storied companies. That is by Craig Moffat. So he's this prominent industry analyst in the media landscape. And Zaslav, he's the new CEO. This merger has been combined at this point. And HBO Discovery, they're under one company. David Zaslav is the CEO now. Over the last five, six months, he's been criticized heavily because he has canceled some shows that have finished recording an entire season but haven't been released yet. He's been criticized for removing shows like Westworld from HBO streaming service. But I think some of these decisions that he's making do make sense in this new landscape, this landscape of profitability and cash flow, because he's clearly making these decisions around profitability and longevity rather than this short-term subscriber growth or just pure growth in shows, growth in content. Zaslav is probably realizing that having some of these older shows on HBO's platform or shows that don't garner enough attention to drive new subscribers or retain old subscribers, it ends up being detrimental for the company because the company has to pay these residuals to the actors as the show continues to get streamed, if it's not actually driving this subscriber growth, then for a company like HBO, it may make more sense just to license that content. And that's where we may see this all go full circle again. That's where we may see companies like Hulu or companies like Disney deciding to license their old content that is not driving subscriber growth back to Netflix, the original streaming and licensing content king. So I think we're seeing this very interesting evolution in the media landscape. We see HBO was defined as this premium cable channel because of some of these critical decisions they made over time, like constantly trying to be different from the broadcast TV networks, do things that their advertising dollars would not support. And now in this new landscape, HBO is taking a little bit more of a niche approach and trying to focus much more on core profitability and retaining and sustainable subscriber growth rather than just spending a lot on content or keeping content that is detrimental for the actual income statement. So that wraps up the incredible history of HBO. I really recommend people, if you're fans of either the media landscape or HBO itself, if some of your favorite shows are Game of Thrones, Silicon Valley, Curb Your Enthusiasm, like myself, I would recommend that you read this book. It is very entertaining. There's many cool inside stories of some of these shows that we watch. And I think you will end up learning a lot about both the original cable business and today the evolving streaming business. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned a lot. And thanks again for listening.